we're in a situation now where we have well over 80 million forcibly displaced people. The most vulnerable of the vulnerable is the term we use. Witness Radio. In episode three of Witness Radio, we explored the real historic causes that compel people to pull up stakes and migrate north. And not just such markers as crippling poverty, corruption, and conflict, but the long-standing political and economic regional realities that have themselves created those conditions. In this episode, we take a deeper dive into the latest driver of forced migration, climate change which in the last decade has had devastating effects on the Central American region, making it increasingly impossible for people to live there. Witness at the Borders' Margaret Seiler joins Amali Tower, the founder and executive director of Climate Refugees, a research and advocacy organization that calls for the protection of those displaced by climate change. In a recent article published by the Center for Climate and Security, Amali calls for a halt to a militarized response to migration, the heretofore go-to of U.S. administrations on both sides of the aisle. As climate change knows no borders, Amali envisions a coordinated regional response that tackles the issue through a human rights, not a security lens. To achieve this, Amali states, the U.S. and other countries in the global north must recognize how their policy and economic development strategies to date have contributed to and even caused water contamination and crop loss, land erosion, and other factors that have disproportionately threatened the survival of the world's most vulnerable people, displacing whole communities year upon year. The impacts of climate change, Amali points out, are not experienced, for the most part, by the major producers of greenhouse gas emissions. Indeed, those most negatively affected by the problem have contributed little to its cause making this a social justice issue. That's why Amali places her hope in an informed and engaged public citizenry, who she sees as best placed to demand change from governments and governmental institutions that are too slow to act, even as Mother Nature herself cries out through wildfires and drenching rains for humankind to tack toward greener and more globally equitable solutions right now. Let's listen. Amali, welcome so much. And before we go on to you, I just want to thank my friend Lucky Tran, a scientist and climate activist who was born in a refugee camp himself after the Vietnam War for introducing us. So first, just want to have you tell us about yourself and how you came to start your organization. Well, thank you so much, Margaret. Thank you for having me here. When you just pause and think about the seriousness of where we are today. It's quite something. I did not come here as a refugee. However, I know displacement quite well. I also am quite unrooted in that I have lived in a variety of places. So I certainly have had the experience of an immigrant, a migrant, and an asylum seeker, which I think very much informs my work. Were you born in Sri Lanka? I'm I'm Sri Lankan, but I was actually born in London, England, which harkens to some of those roots that are scattered everywhere. Yeah, I'm one of those people who was born in one place and was raised in multiple locations. So therefore, I've gone through various immigration systems and have various members of my family who are multiple nationalities. And tell us about the work you're doing with climate refugees and which countries you're focused on at the moment. 
So my background is in refugee protection. And by that, I mean that I've been working up until the last six years in what we all know as the traditional refugee framework, which we're about to have the 70th anniversary of, which is the 1951 Refugee Convention. That's the framework that really provides the international legal protection for all that most of us come to think of as refugees. So that work has largely been done with UNHCR, which is the UN Refugee Agency, NGOs, the U.S. Refugee Admissions Program. Much of the work you're seeing at Witness at the Border, the asylum seekers even that you see come to the U.S. southern border, they are refugees who are seeking asylum, don't have that status yet, right? But still the purpose of law that is enabling that whole process to happen. And thus the whole advocacy is really about invoking those rights. Now enter climate change, right? We know that climate change is very much a driver and a contributor to the compounding crises that also force migration and displacement both internally and across borders. And in the process of doing my work with refugees, refugees at the UN has recognized as such, refugees that even the United States would want to resettle in its own country. I've heard numerous accounts of people speaking about environmental degradation, about climate change, and about livelihood loss. In some instances, even more than the conflict in their home countries. And not only does that speak to something that is urgent, it also speaks to what it means in terms of loss at the individual level. Because you're talking about people whose entire survival is threatened. And that continues as well in their countries um, that they're seeking asylum in, in the host countries, because most refugees end up seeking protection in neighboring countries. So when it comes to climate change, you might find yourself having left a political situation in your home country as well as an environmental situation, which for you is both social and economic and akin to persecution because it's entirely disruptive, and then flee to a neighboring country, which is also experiencing the same environmental devastation and loss. So one of those very conditions that is really stifling your very survival, there's really no way to run away from. So I heard this over and over again, and that's really what led me to found the organization now six years ago. And so what events are you working on right now? There's no country or region in the world that's unaffected by climate change. So it's not a question of where we're working as much as where we aren't working. So it's really about creating awareness, building education of the public, and that also includes policymakers, to understand that it's something that's happening in Africa or in Asia or in Latin America, as one might tend to think about what forced migration or what poverty or what a refugee context looks like. This is something that is happening as an existential force just about everywhere. And what is important to understand here is that while there's equality in how climate change impacts everybody, there's complete inequality in how one can mitigate those impacts. Because what is true is that those who are on the front lines of this and those who are most impacted are generally those who are on the margins of society economically, those who are disadvantaged by this system, those who are 
immigrants, indigenous, black, people of color, asylum seekers, refugees, we're talking about populations that are paying a disproportionate price for having contributed very little to global warming in the first place. So this is an inherent issue of justice, really. We're talking about forced displacement and the law being ill-equipped to deal with the fact that people are seeking asylum for things that are really outside the bounds of the 1951 Refugee Convention. People are fleeing situations that are inherently unjust. They are fleeing situations that are impacted them that they've contributed almost nothing to. When was the moment where you thought, I really have to focus on climate? This is the issue that speaks to me. I would say that it's, it was the Horn of Africa and Somalia where it really sort of like drove home to me. The fact that these are regions of the world that have very strong compounding crises that are socioeconomic, where there are insurgencies, where there are conflicts between states and an armed faction and not necessarily an insurgent group. Very complex and very fragile situations. You're talking about weak institutions. You're talking about things that sort of fall within the traditional rubric of conflict, what we recognize as like traditional conflict and traditional refugee scenarios. So in that context, you're a little bit surprised to sit in temperatures that are like 110 degrees and speak to refugee after refugee after refugee, who you know are in situations of complete desperation, who let's not forget, Margaret, if they are speaking to you about being identified for resettlement, they've already been displaced for upwards of definitely more than 10 years because you're not even identified for resettlement until you're in a protracted situation, which is at minimum five years. So you're talking about a situation in which you fully expect people to come in and tell you about the conflict and tell you why they can't return because they're going to be killed or harmed. And in that context, to hear someone talk about, I can't feed my family because my crops failed for five years is extremely surprising and shocking. Oh, and yes, by the way, my whole family was killed. And I watched this horrible terror come upon me. I watched this happen to my daughter. I I don't have words to describe the the strangeness of that all. So you founded the organization in 2015, uh, Climate Refugees. I was just struck by what you said, that it takes so many years for people applying for refugee status. Is that right? Uh, Well, they don't really apply. You can't apply to be resettled. Okay. And you also can't apply for status. It's awarded to you. It's given to you by any state that is party to that convention. What happens is a situation in which you are a refugee who has international protection, which the UN has that mandate to provide, and you have what's considered a lack of durable solutions, meaning you cannot return to your country of origin. You cannot be integrated into your host country. And so there's a lack of alternative solutions. And so the third durable solution is resettlement to a third country. Less than 1% of the global population is resettled to begin with. And of that less than 1%, the United States used to take until the previous administration. So we're in a situation now where we have well over 80 million forcibly displaced people. The most vulnerable of the vulnerable is the term we use. 
So I'm curious both how things have changed so far between the previous administration and the current one, and also what are your thoughts about what we could do as a country to make this whole process even easier for people? Yeah, it's a great question. This administration, let's start there. Let's start by sharing. This administration has a very bold and visionary position on climate in general and has made it very clear that uh, essentially it's national policy, it's foreign policy, it's climate policy are all synergies working together. When it comes to refugee policy, there was an executive order as well that said, hey, we're going to sort of rebuild our refugee admissions program. And, And within that, the president said, we want to understand what impacts do climate change pose to migration, forced migration, displacement, internal displacement, and has asked for a report from five agencies within the United States government that is reflective of those realities. So what that signifies is possibly some incredibly bold and visionary leadership and new policy, even law, and recognizing that people are you know, now being displaced for reasons other than the grounds that are protected under the Refugee Convention. At the same time, you spoke about what's happening at the border and Title 42 and people being forced to remain in agreements that have been brokered that essentially offshore asylum and is by all accounts a, um, a derogation of, of what is the asylum standard that each country is really supposed to cede uh, un- under the convention. So there's definitely a disconnect. But what I do believe is that there are forces other than what we traditionally understand that are at play here and that we need to be visionary and forward thinking. And yet there are political realities that are somewhat incongruent. So what does that mean? There's a lack of political will. How do we counter that? We counter that through education, through awareness, through engagement, and through a public citizenry that gets involved by knowing what's going on, by understanding the complexity of forced migration and displacement. This has always been a complex and social disruption to entire lives and livelihoods. And unfortunately, the powers that run the world tend to be in the global north and tend to be disaggregated amongst a very few small countries. And until we can shift the knowledge to be far more dispersed into the hands of a populace, which I think we can do, that is what it's going to take to shift policy. Because we've seen it happen. We've seen that when there's a citizenry that's engaged and that demands more, um, policy shift. We saw it happen in Guatemala when the vice president had some incredibly blunt foreign policy statements, and she had to walk it back because her own party, as well as opposition, were shocked. Not only was that a moral and ethical, you know, outcry, it also was flagrantly against not only national law, but U.S. law as well. In November 2020, Back-to-back hurricanes slammed Guatemala, Honduras, and Nicaragua, impacting 4 million people in countries already suffering from years of drought 
as well as land erosion and contaminated water sources caused by mining industries and megaprojects like hydroelectric power plants whose benefits are felt largely in the global north. In Guatemala alone, hurricanes Eta and Iota destroyed 40% of subsistence agricultural yields, while 80% of basic staples like maize and beans were wiped out. Food insecurity exacerbated by endemic poverty and economic inequality has made an entire region uninhabitable. Driving people to the U.S. southern border where they are largely met by cruelty, closed doors, and messages of don't come. Want to act? Amali is going to tell us how. But before I turn the mic back over to her, I invite you to become a patron of Witness Radio where you'll be privy to exclusive additional content as well as invitations from Witness at the Border. Just go to patreon.com slash witnessradio and sign up. Now, back to Margaret and Amali. Is there a campaign or some specific education that you're doing through the Climate Refugees website people can go to to just find out how how to do what you're talking about, get their friends and family involved in this kind of mobilization that we need? Absolutely. We do education and raising awareness through several platforms. There's a current event platform called um, Spotlight Climate Displacement in the News, which uh, provides you education, but also awareness of the complexities of what I started to talk about today. Going far beyond understanding, is this just a legal problem? What does all of this have to do with climate justice? If you want to understand what those things mean, you need to be reading the news with a whole lot of critical analysis. Spotlight Climate and Displacement in the News is a current events platform that provides both information and insights. Another platform that provides insights that are very much country-driven and displaced communities themselves is called Perspectives, Climate Displacement in the Field. And then other information we provide is through country reports, border reports, which are directed towards policymakers, legislators, We do a lot of direct lobbying and advocacy with policymakers, legislators at all levels. And then lastly, I will say, as far as citizen engagement goes, we have a new campaign that's about to be launched, a digital campaign called Frontlines, Actions and Stories on Climate Displacement, which will be launched very soon, which will be a web platform that allows everybody to take everyday actions towards climate justice. towards helping the very populations that we're talking about that are at risk of these human rights being eroded every single day. That's great, thank you. Thank you, Amali. Okay, my pleasure. Thanks and gratitude to Amali Tower and Margaret Seiler for bringing the real plight of climate refugees to our attention and for giving us solutions to take action. Shout outs to Witness Radio Executive Producer, Camilo Perez Bustillo, our Patreon patrons, without whom we could not produce this show, and to you, our listeners, for joining us to consider the greatest crisis of our time, climate change, which contributes to forced migration the world over. I'm Sarah Towell, host and director of Witness Radio, where we aim to discuss all the issues plaguing the U.S. immigration system today. This is Why We Witness. Subscribe, rate, and review Witness Radio on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please consider becoming a patron of Witness Radio if you haven't already. You can join our growing community at patreon.com slash witnessradio. We'll see you here, there, and 
everywhere. Witness Radio is produced by Livia Brock.